So we're reading this morning from the first book of Corinthians, uh, chapter 1. If you've got the Black Church Bibles, we're on page 1770, and the words are on the screen to my left. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So we'll come back right to Genesis now, right at the start, on page 31, and we're in chapter 22. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early in the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He loaded with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns, horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, 
I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and, th and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Well, thank you so much, David. And it's good to be here today. Good to see you. Now, the Bible, of course, is a wonderful book. Uh, because it speaks to us of God. You want to know what God's like, you read the Bible. Um, but though it's wonderful, there are some parts of the Bible which when we read, it's very hard not to read without wincing. In this series, we've been looking at some of the common objections to the God of the Bible. So we've looked at the biggest ethical problem of the, of the Old Testament, the slaughter of the Canaanites. Last week, we looked at a current ethical objection, male headship. This week, we come to the biggest ethical problem of the New Testament, the cross, which is the centerpiece of Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Really? A God who crucifies his son. Most of us, of course, have no problem with the cross. Uh, if we're believers, the cross gives us proof of God's love for us. The cross shows us the depth of that love, how far he would go to reconcile a broken relationship. The cross provides assurance of our salvation. We have no problem with the cross. We love the cross. But to many, many people, uh, the cross is immoral. I remember one night, not long after I had become a Christian, uh, the other, my other siblings had in our family, and I remember speaking to my mother, who wasn't a believer, and saying, look, what do you think about what we believe? Do you think we're just crazy? And she's a smart woman. She said with astounding clarity and insight, really, she said, no, I don't think you're crazy, but I don't like anyone telling me what to do. And I think it's immoral that someone dies for someone else's sins. Now, she went right to the heart of what Christians believe. She denied Jesus' lordship and she took issue with Jesus being her saviour. And that's right at the heart of everything. Um, she thought the cross immoral. That thought is not uncommon. It might be that you are here today and you're still thinking through Christianity and for you, this is a massive stumbling block. Well, to those of us who are Christian believers here, God calls us in 1 Peter 3 to always be ready to give defense for the hope that you have. At the very least, that must mean being able to answer this question about the cross because it's the heart of what we believe. So we need to respond and all of us need to think about this. But of course, we can only respond to the objection, we can only indeed challenge it if we first hear it. So let's listen to the objection. Richard Dawkins said that the doctrine of the atonement is vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. He said it presents a barbaric, vindictive, bloodthirsty God guilty of cosmic child abuse. And he has a point, doesn't he? I mean, if you remember two weeks ago, if you were here, God judged the Canaanites because they sacrificed their children. Didn't he do the same? 
Christopher Hitchens gives us another slant. He said, ask yourself this question, how moral is the following? I'm told of a human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without my wishing it and in circumstances so ghastly that had I been present and in possession of any influence, I would have been duty-bound to try and stop it. In consequence of this murder, my manifold sins are forgiven me so that I may hope to enjoy eternal life. How's that moral? So he's agreeing with Dawkins, but he's saying something extra. It's immoral for an innocent person to pay for someone else's sins because we all ought to be responsible for our own sins. And he says the doctrine of the atonement stops us facing up to the immorality of our own actions. It conveniently allows us to pass the buck, get off scot-free, including people who are guilty of the most heinous crimes, and that's immoral, isn't it? So here's the objections. The cross presents God as a vindictive, bloodthirsty God. It's immoral for an innocent person to pay for the sins of someone who is guilty. And then to these two, we might add a third, that it's relationally impossible for an innocent third party to erase the guilt of someone. And I think we, we get this. You know, if I wrong you and someone else is punished in my place, how does that in any way restore our relationship? It doesn't erase the guilt of the guilty person, it just doesn't work, so, you know. Are you hearing the objection? Christians point unbelievers to the cross and say, this is your God. Unbelievers look at the cross and say, this is your God, he's immoral. Okay, we've heard the objection, how can we respond? Let's think about the first objection that the cross presents God as a bloodthirsty cosmic child abuser. I want to, look at this seriously through the eye of Genesis 22, uh, our second reading, because Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is the earliest picture we have in the Bible of atonement, and it cuts right to the heart of the child abuse issue, because it really does sound like horrific child abuse. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on the mountain as a burnt offering. It's just awful, isn't it? And, you know, how can you read that story without you know, feeling terrible or just questioning it, it's easy to form some immediate conclusions about God and write him off. But the first thing to say with both this story of Abraham and Isaac and with the cross is that there is a wider context. First of all, God had made a promise about the son. In Abraham's case, God explicitly promised that through Isaac, Abraham would have a great nation of descendants, which means that whatever the outcome, Abraham knows that this promise must stand. Second, when God tells Abraham to get up and go to the land of Moriah, all the blessing bells would have been ringing in his head because they are the very same words that he used when God first spoke to Abraham and said, get up and go to the land I will show you. It's the same formula, get up and go to the land of Moriah, get up and go to the land I will show you. That means that Abraham knows that God will turn this into a blessing. His blessing bells would have been going off. Thirdly, God has already called upon Abraham to do a hard thing with sending off his other son, Ishmael. But alongside this, Abraham had God's assurance that things would turn out all right for Ishmael. He would not die. He would become a great nation. 
You put all these things together from the context, you see Abraham had very good reason to think that even if the worst should happen, even if Isaac should die, God would raise him from the dead because he had promised that descendants and blessing would come through Isaac. In fact, Hebrews 11, later on in the Bible, reflecting back on this moment, says, by faith, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So the context of that sacrifice is at least the idea of resurrection. And we, rip, we miss it if we rip that story out of its context. And so there's a warning to us about doing the same when we come to the cross because the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has the same context of resurrection. And this has to then temper whatever conclusions we might make about God from these stories. Because God is not a God who completely abandons his son to death. God raises him from the dead. Death isn't the end of the story, in other words. What else can be said? If we read the story closely and we let it speak for itself, it presents God, my suggestion is it presents God not as harsh and insensitive at all. Now, you might wonder about this. <laughs> Let me try and make the case. We're told up front that God tested Abraham, which tells us that God wasn't ever going to make Abraham actually go through with sacrificing Isaac. It was a test. Now, Abraham didn't know it was a test, but we know that it was a test. More than that, God virtually tells Abraham that there will be a way out. He tells Abraham to take Isaac to the region of Moriah. The word Moriah means provision. We miss this, but Abraham wouldn't have missed it. He would have understood. Take Isaac to the place of provision. More than that, God is not callous and insensitive in telling Abraham what to do. He knows how difficult this test will be for Abraham. We hear it in how he speaks of Isaac. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Now you might think, oh, that just shows how callous and insensitive God is. He knows it will be hard and gets Abraham to do it anyway. But the thing that we miss in our translation is the word please. Please take your son. Or as one Jewish scholar translates, take your son, I beg of you. This is very rare in the commands of God. It shows that God appreciates the costliness of what he's asking. And it shows that within his command is the option of Abraham not going through with it. Now, of course, the sacrifice of Isaac is prophetic of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Uh, that Mount Moriah, that place, is actually the place, the very mountain where the temple gets built later on, the place of atonement in Jerusalem. Now, admittedly, in Jerusalem, Jesus did die, but could we say this is cosmic child abuse? That, would, that term implies an abuse of power, that God somehow held it over his son and abused his son against his son's wishes. But not so. Isaac, of course, may have had no choice in the matter, but not so with Jesus. Jesus went willingly of his own volition, of his own free will, his own choice. In fact, in regards to the cross, the Father's command of Jesus was more in the manner of his please command to Abraham. By which I mean, it wasn't as if Jesus had no choice in the matter. Because 
Although Jesus knew that it was his father's will for him to suffer and die, and that although Jesus was obedient to that will, he wasn't forced by his father to do something against his own decision. In fact, should he have asked for it, God the Father would have rescued him. We know this because in Gethsemane, the night before Jesus died, when he is arrested, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, put your sword away. Do you not think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He had a way out. But then he said, but how would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? He had a way out, but he knew his Father's will, that it was for him to go, and so in love and obedience, free will, he willingly gave himself to be crucified. What all this means is that whatever reason the Father may have had for asking this of the Son, it wasn't child abuse. So now we get to the question, well, is it immoral? And the question we need to ask of that is, immoral from whose point of view? Because there are several points of view. Um, is the cross immoral, first of all, from the point of view of the person whose sin was paid for, from our point of view, from we the sinners? Um, maybe we might think, this is immoral, you know, for starters, I don't need it, my sins don't need punishing, or maybe we think the idea that someone else has to pay for my sins insults our pride, I'll pay for my own sins, thank you very much, I don't want someone else to do it. Or maybe we look at the worst of sinners, the Pol Pots, the Adolf Hitlers, and we say, it's totally immoral that someone like that who's done some heinous crimes should be able to get off scot-free without ever being punished. That's immoral. Or is it immoral from the point of view of the innocent party? Jesus. Uh, immoral for an innocent man like himself to have to pay for the punishment of those who are guilty? Or is the cross immoral from the other party in the equation, the one most often forgotten, God, is the atonement immoral for him? After all, he has to forgive uh, without punishing the offenders. Is that immoral? I want to look at these three parties, ourselves, Jesus and God, although it makes sense to tackle the claim that it was immoral for Jesus first because obviously he is the innocent party. Is the cross immoral from Jesus' own point of view? He's obviously innocent. The Jewish leadership can't prove any wrongdoing. Three times Pilate, the Roman governor, uh, confesses, testifies to his innocence. The ultimate proof of his innocence is the fact that he rose from the dead because death keeps hold only of the guilty. So he's innocent. Was his death immoral from his point of view? Well, even Christopher Hitchens would have to say no. Hitchens acknowledges we all know what it is for someone to pay a fine for someone else. We're used to that. And even the idea of someone giving their life for another, there's nothing more noble that someone can do. Interesting admission. Most of us know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that speaks of the Father's action. We may not know 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That verse speaks of the son's willing action in going to the cross. Or we hear it from Jesus' lips in John chapter 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. 
No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He said it, right? He says, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The father gave him authority to do what he wanted to with his life. So even though he was innocent to submit to crucifixion was Jesus' own decision, which means that the cross can't be immoral from his point of view. So let's change perspective. Let's now ask the question from our point of view. Because from our point of view, yes, the cross can seem immoral. This was my mother's objection. How can God just let terrible sinners off scot-free? And isn't it just plain immoral for someone else to die for my sins? Now, of course, it is immoral for someone to be forgiven without justice being served. Um, we know this, we live in a moral universe. Children from very early age say of their own accord, that's not fair. We all have a moral sense built into us, right? Uh, we know that it's right that punishment be served when someone has committed a wrong. In fact, our whole legal system uh, is developed on this premise. And because that premise works relationally, we know it's impossible to forgive without justice being served. Someone has to pay, you see. Um, to illustrate this, I, uh, I'll re relay to you a conversation I had with a man named Frank Retief. He's an Anglican minister in South Africa, a bishop, um, brilliant evangelist, lovely man, great pastor. He pastored a church which he founded in a, a poor slum area of Johannesburg with only four children he started, and he and his wife grew this church to over 1,600. He saw hundreds and hundreds of people come to Christ. In July 1993, at an evening service with 1,000 people there, three masked gunmen walked in and opened fire on the congregation and threw hand grenades around. Now, South Africa was a violent place, but never before had violence like this been unleashed in a church. This was the first time this had happened. And 11 people were killed, including well, people just like you and me. And you can imagine the scene. Um, 50 people were injured, um, bullet wounds and shrapnel wounds. What made the story amazing is that when the media arrived within 10 to 20 minutes, as the people were hugging those who were injured and gathered around, you know, family members gathered around others who'd been killed, you can just imagine. And as the... Um, cameras moved from group to group. Each group, without exception and without rehearsing at all, each group spoke to the camera and spontaneously said, we don't know who you are, we don't know why you've done this, but in the name of Jesus Christ, we want to say we forgive you. It was staggering. And of course, that went viral around South Africa on the media because in a country plagued with violence, and the need for justice where there wasn't any, then it became a question of morality. Isn't it immoral to forgive people who've done a heinous crime? And this gave opportunity for many Christians in South Africa to, to share their faith and to talk about the cross. But of course, for the congregation then, having said, we forgive you, they had to do it, right? And it's easy in a moment, or maybe difficult in that moment to say it, but much harder later on when the impact of the carnage um, settles to, to follow through and to forgive. And 
um, it was very hard. This coincided with the dismantling of apartheid and Desmond Tutu uh, was, had set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission where those who had committed atrocities had to meet victims or the victims' families and personally ask for their forgiveness. But there was no justice. There was no um, judges involved. There were no sentences passed. Now, Frank Retief said, when the gunmen were captured, he and, as the pastor, had, and 17 elders who represented the church had to go and meet each of these gunmen and look them in the eye and um, say, I forgive you, and hear their request for forgiveness. But he saw the look on their faces and he said, we knew that, that it was just words. They, they knew they would never go to trial, they would never face any justice. And he as pastor had to then help his church forgive them. How did he do it? He said the only way he was able to lead his congregation in forgiving the men was to remind them that one day God would serve justice on them, either at the day of judgment or retrospectively beforehand at the cross when their sins were punished in God's son, Jesus. He needed to talk about justice because it's not the case that God just forgives without serving justice. He does serve out justice either on the offender on the day of judgment or in his son who died in the place of sinners. There can be no forgiveness without justice happening as well. And we might say, well, it's immoral for us not to be held accountable ourselves it's immoral for someone else to be punished for something that I do. This was my mother's objection. This was Christopher Hitchens' objection. Now, what's the assumption behind that? The assumption in that objection is that we are able to pay for our own sins. That is the premise of religion. That is, by purifying ourselves, by, by somehow doing good works, we are able to atone for the wrong that we have done. The Bible's view on that is that this is hopelessly optimistic because it minimizes sin, it minimizes the offense to God that our sin carries. You think for a moment, you know, when someone believes they are capable of atoning for their sin themselves, well, we want to say, how do you know that you can do that? It's not actually something you can decide that you can just atone for your sins because God's the injured party. He's the one who needs to decide whether this is possible. He's going to be the judge. Have you bothered to ask God what he thinks about your own capacity to atone for your own sins? We need to listen to what God says, but when we do listen to what God says about our sinfulness, we discover two very important things. Number one, our individual sins are much more serious than we think they are. You know, we think, oh, it's just eating a bit of fruit on a tree. <laughs> well, what does the Bible say about that? It says it's a decision what to honour a slimy creature over a creator. It's a rejection of God's life-giving word to you. It's a decision to doubt God's good and faithful character. It's a decision to rebel against his rightful rule over our lives as our creator. In fact, it's a personal rejection of God over us. Now, if any of my kids did that to me, I'd be devastated. How much more God who made us? 
See, we minimize sin, we think that God is overreacting, but our sins are much more serious than we think they are. Number two, we, when we read the Bible, we discover that we have in, an in, innate fallenness, a corruption of our natures. We are like a coal shopping trolley that's destined to go straight, or sorry, yeah, made to go straight, but sort of just veers off all the time in the car park. Um, our natures are not good, they're not even neutral, even Christopher Hitchens admits this, the essential, the essential nature of man, he said, is evil. Now, I need to say this doesn't mean that human beings are incapable of doing any good. We can do enormous good, and we've seen it, haven't we, in the way in which many Austra thousands of Australians have helped out people who've been affected by the fires. Because God made us in our image, we still can reflect that image when we do good. Yes, we're fallen, but we are still his image bearers. This is the paradox of being human. We are capable, at the same time, of doing incredible good, yet extreme evil. Uh, Jesus himself said it. If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. <laughs> There's the paradox. Being fallen, we can still do good, but being fallen means that we're absolutely kidding ourselves if we think that doing good can somehow atone for our bad because the, the good that we do is tainted. Our essential nature is corrupt and fallen, which means we can't atone for our sins. To say that you can, it's like trying to do a house renovation and replacing rotten floorboards with rotten floorboards. You know, you can't fix up something that's rotten with something that's rotten. Isaiah says, all our good works are like filthy rags in your sight. You know. Okay. Lastly, is the cross immoral from God's point of view? I list his point of view lastly because his is the point of view most often ignored. And that brings us to the root of the problem. You see, why would the cross be immoral for God? The most obvious reason is the cost of atonement is the life of his precious son and isn't it immoral and unfair to God that the price of reconciliation with people who treat him badly must be the death of someone so precious to him? Why can't God just forgive without the need for blood to be shed? And the answer, once again, is that we live in a moral universe where wrongs must be paid for and the reason for this is that it is God's universe and God himself is just. It's right at the heart of who he is. And if we try and say evil and sins do not need to go punished, God can just forgive. If evil and sins don't need to go punished, that creates a horror world not, not worth contemplating. Imagine a world where no one was ever held to account for the terrible wrong they did. Imagine a world where no act of evil was ever punished. Imagine what that says about the victims of those evils and how much their point of view counts. You know, we think of the killing fields in Cambodia where millions were murdered by Pol Pot in the 70s. Imagine if God never judged those murderers. What, what does that say about God's attitude to the victims? Well, it does say they don't matter, they're, they're unimportant, they have no value. And so a God who cares nothing about justice is a hellish God. Well, thankfully, we know that people do matter 
And the reason is that we are made in the image of God by a God who cares because he is just. But if God punishes everyone who do evil, then none of us would live. This is a problem. If he forgives without punishment, then he's an immoral God. So how can he forgive and be just at the same time? Well, now you see the beautiful answer that is the cross. Rather than the cross being immoral to God, the cross is God's answer to the immorality of forgiveness without justice. It's God's answer to the immorality of the alternative of sending people to hell to pay for their sins. The cross is the solution. It's the place where God's love and God's justice meet, where God's love and justice kiss one another. So we've heard the objection that the cross is immoral. We've responded to the objection the cross is immoral. Finally, very quickly, I want to challenge the objection. You know, the wonder and beauty of the cross is it deals with human evil and it still allows a way for justice to be upheld and for repentant people to find forgiveness from God. So when someone writes it off as immoral, it's worth coming back and saying, well, if you condemn God for the cross, how would you have him just accept and forgive people? How can there be forgiveness of sinners without the cross? They could say, well, God should only accept those who deserve it. But none of us deserve it, so they can't say that. Perhaps God should simply forgive everyone without requiring a payment. Well, that would make a mockery of justice and the value of those whose lives have been destroyed by terrible sin. Didn't Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing? Yes, he did, but he prayed that in regard to the Roman soldiers who were acting in ignorance. He doesn't pray that about everyone, actually. Ultimately, the cross, as barbaric as it seems, is the only solution. It might look immoral, but if you ask from whose point of view, you see that it's not immoral. On the contrary, at the cross, what do you see? You see God dealing with sin in all of its horror. He doesn't minimalize it. He doesn't trivialize it. He doesn't ignore it. He faces it and he punishes it so that sinners who deserve hell could be spared and restored in relationship with God and be granted forgiveness. And that's the beauty of the cross. It's wonderful. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, and yes, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the cross. Um, thank you that you gave your son and that he gave himself to your plan. Thank you that in him you did what none of us could do and survive. He carried our sins. He bore the punishment 
and you brought him through. And we praise you, therefore, that we can be forgiven knowing that our sins have been dealt with. And you haven't minimised our sin, you haven't trivialised it, you've looked at it in all its horror. But justice has been served, punishment has been paid, and a way has been made open for sinners to be reconciled to you. We thank you. We thank you for the cross. Amen.